Children ages three through first grade are welcome to participate in children's church. They're going to head out these doors. And I'm going to ask the rest of you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12 as we continue our series talking about what, um, what the Bible says we are, where Jesus says you are, or Paul says you are. Uh, those are statements we should pay close attention to. Um, we hear a lot of different definitions of who we are. Uh, in fact, I would wonder, as we think about today's passage, uh, what do you think you are worth? How would, how would you place a value on, on who you are? Uh, the world wants to say that our worth and our value is based on our productivity. And those who produce a lot have a great, big, old, fat net worth. And those that are kind of unproductive, not so much. And then, and then you know, God for, forbid you are un, completely unproductive and don't do anything and live in a perpetual deficit. Then you're, you're nothing. You're worth nothing. You're worthless. But is that true? Is, what, how, is how the world tells us to value ourselves, is that accurate? And of, and of course it's not. And we're going to hear Jesus correct that view of our worth. So let's Stand in honor of God's word. I'm in Luke chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 4 through 7. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. I will warn you who to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not... Five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for how you value us, that we are secure in our relationship with you because of the worth that you ascribe to us. Thank you for Jesus it's because of him uh, that we have value. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Um, we're going to talk about how you know, we're valuable, but we have to first talk about how we're vulnerable. Uh, and that if we're not careful, you know, our value is you know, ascribed by the world instead of by God. And we don't want to do that. So, um, so let's talk about how vulnerable we are first, and then, we'll, then we're going to look more at our value. Uh, and we have to talk about vulnerability because, uh, again, this gets to like who are we listening to? Because the world wants to value us cheaply. Uh, and, and in fact, you know, we're, we're kind of vulnerable in the world's eyes because everywhere we look, we hear you know, a, a news story or we see the next viral video showing somebody treating somebody poorly or, or you know, or worse, because human life is, is cheap, frankly. And everywhere we turn, you know, everything we see, uh, and it can be the background noise, we get so accustomed to it, just that people are being exploited, uh, they're being abused, uh, they're being belittled, uh, they're being harassed, they're even being murdered, just like Jesus is describing. He's talking about people who have very, very little regard for human life, uh, for the value of a person. 
you know, and they would soon kill you as, you know, by, by a pack of gum at the gas station. Um, so, so I know that's an extreme statement, you know, but, but we all understand this. We understand our vulnerability. We understand our, our fragility. Even though uh, I know in this room, and, and I know many of your stories, we, we actually do have a lot of sort of buffer and, and insulation against some of this fragility. Um, we're, we're frankly very blessed. Uh, we've got a lot of things, a lot of props. But that's not the case for many, many people. Uh, it doesn't take much to lose our sense of security and safety, even despite all of the comforts and privileges we, we have around us that, that keep us from what the world experiences by and large. But still, even with that security, even with a lot of the things we enjoy, just, yeah, it doesn't take much for people to think they're not worth very much. And you experience it, you know, on various times. Maybe you're at work, and, you know, the person at work is cussing at you because you made a mistake, and, you know, they, they're valuing you as worthless. You know, you failed. You failed them. You failed their expectations or whatever. Or you're at school. And somebody's talking behind your back and they're making life hard for you because they're ruining your reputation and saying things that aren't true about you and they consider you very, very worthless. That makes us feel vulnerable. That sort of exposes our, our fragility. But there's a scale to this. I mean, that, that's pedantic stuff. That's shallow water stuff. Like, we can handle that. Okay, somebody cusses you out or somebody lies about you. It hurts, but it doesn't destroy you. It doesn't really harm you. But, but there are things that really can us. Like, there's a scale to this whole continuum of what is life worth? What about the people who think that life inside a mother's womb isn't really worth a lot? It's after, it's after that baby is outside the womb. Oh, then we'll ascribe, you know, worth and value to that person. Like, why is that? That person's life is really at risk. And what about those who think that a person's value depends on the, the amount of pigment in their skin. Like, less pigment, you're worth more. More pigment, I don't know about you. What's up with that? So why are people thinking that life depends on skin color or, or whether that person is in or outside their mother's womb? Or why do people think that somebody's value depends on what country they come from or you know, what language they speak. You know, these are things that just ha should have no regard for, for value, and yet they do, and they expose how fragile and vulnerable we are, and really how helpless we can be when entire groups of people start believing that your value depends on some of those things. But let's make this personal, and, and, and I'm sorry, I, I, mean, I actually kind of feel like I have to make uh, an apologetic for, for this. Uh, like, I'm, I'm looking at this passage, and it's, you know, about, you know, people who want to kill you, and there's this, you know, whole thing about Jesus saying you should fear God, and, you know, uh, so it's life and death stuff, and, and I'm trying to think, man, this is going to be heavy. How do I lighten this up? I can't. So just, I just want to let you know, I, I understand, I get it, I'm acknowledging this is, this is heavy, but let's, let's, let's keep going, because I think it's going to be rewarding. You know, the, the people who go to the gym and lift those heavy things called weights, they, they get rewarded, they get muscles. So let's get some spiritual muscle. Because, and we need, to, we need to think personally about this. Like, how vulnerable are we? How fragile are we? And in other people's eyes, like, what are we worth? Let's get personal. 
How has our own congregation been affected by this? Like Ann Seton's life did not matter that much. To the man who decided, I'm going to have, yeah, give me another, pour me another. Pour me another. You know, he didn't stop at three. He didn't stop at six. He didn't stop at eight. Like the estimates are he had like 12 drinks. And then went out on the road and decided that everybody else's, you know, safety and security was worth less to him than having another drink. And Ann Seton lost her life because of that. And what about, you know, uh, there's all kinds of discussions about uh, COVID, of course, and, you know, how, what kind of, how, how much... How much do we risk? How much do? How many precautions do we take? Like, what what happens? You know, in terms of exposing people, and uh, and and this got personal for for my family. You know, for my wife's grandfather, who he and his wife uh, lived in their home, and they were homebound, and they had caregivers come in, and that's where my wife's grandfather got COVID. It was from his his caregiver, and. Without, I, I don't know the circumstances, so I'm not going to read motives. Um, but it's possible, right, that this person was completely careless, didn't care that they were positive, I'm just going to go do my thing, whatever, you know, and infected my wife's grandfather. I, I don't, I want to believe that's not the case. Maybe they were asymptomatic and didn't know. Or maybe, again, we're just doing a little thought experiment here. What if that person was a single mom? or a single dad, caregiver, you know, has got to go to work, can't miss work because he's got two kids at home, and, you know, uh, the, the, and their, their company makes it really, really hard to miss work. Like, what's the value of the life of the client, or what's the value of the life of the staff for that company? Like, they're doing all the metrics, they're doing all the economics, and they're deciding maybe, I mean, and we know, we, we're smart, we're, we're not foolish and, you know, ignorant to think that there aren't companies that function like this where, you know what, the bottom line, the profits uh, that we're going to bring in are, are, are enough that they can cover some of the liabilities that we'll be exposed to if there's an accident, if there's an illness, if there's, you know, a lawsuit involving one of our staff or one of the clients and so on, we'll be fine. And so, you know what, we're not going to make allowances. We're not going to make provisions for people to stay home who are sick. So you, you know that this exists, and there's this whole price tag that we put on people. There, there actually is a price tag on people. And it goes like this. It's called the value of statistical life, the VSL. This is a thing that companies use. And it's been in existence for decades, and it's kind of evolved along the way. It got started by an economist named Kip uh, Viscusi, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, but um, basically companies were trying to reckon with that whole thing that I just described, like, okay, what's, what, what are the profits we're going to make, and then what are the expected costs we're going to incur if somebody is, you know, harmed by our product, and working out that ratio, like, what do we need to do? And then the government kind of gets involved and says, All right, well, what do we have to do to protect our citizens, and so on. This value of statistical life came into existence uh, and it's used currently by multiple, you know, agencies in our government. We're talking about the FAA. We're talking about OSHA. 
Uh, we're talking about the Department of Justice. We're talking about the EPA, et cetera. Other agencies are using this value of statistical life. And this is why, this, this VSL is why uh, it began with the warning labels on you know, chemical products, basically, that you've got in your kitchen, you know, under the kitchen sink or in the bathroom or whatever. All those little skull and crossbone labels cost money to design and to manufacture and to adhere to those labels. And it was a cost-benefit ratio to decide, all right, well, it's going to cost this much to do those labels. We're going to have maybe this much in liabilities. And, well, does it cost more to do the labels? Then we're not going to do the labels. But if it costs more to deal with the liability, then we'll do the labels. And the VSL is what made that, you know, helped them work out that those economics. This is why there are seatbelts that are required uh, by law. This is why there are now uh, rear backup cameras on, on, on our vehicles that are now standard. Uh, this is why there's all kinds of things like this. Do you know what the current estimate of, you know what the current VSL is? Do you know what the VSL says that you're worth? Just take a guess. What are you worth? It's good news. It's not bad. A, a million? For you or for Ann? <laughs> That's not high enough, brother. You got to keep going. It's actually $10 million. You're worth $10 million, according to the VSL. And you go, wow, it's not bad. Until you think, what can you actually buy with $10 million? buy a nice house, like a real, you know, pretty nice house. Yeah, a really nice house. But then you're like, is that all? Like, I, I, you know, you start doing the math, $10 million doesn't buy you much. I mean, maybe it can get you a, a trip on SpaceX or something like that. You know, it's just $10 million. Actually, if you start really thinking through it, that's not so flattering. And then we get to, you know, the, the kind of going along that scale, we, we, we've been looking at what does the world say we're worth? Well, when you start looking at the, the grim reality of what Jesus is describing, these people, his disciples, who are actually fearing for their lives from, from, from persecutors who, you know, want to torture and kill in order to intimidate those who believe differently from them, and from terrorists, you know, who want to torture and kill for those, you know, to, who, who are their political opponents, and for slave traders who take people captive and put prices on their heads for various reasons. Like Jesus tells us not to be afraid of any of these people, no matter how vulnerable a situation we're actually in. Don't be afraid of them. Yeah, they can kill the body, but they don't have power over the soul. They might think you're worthless, but there's one who actually considers you worth something. And he's the one that we're, we're, we're supposed to fear. Do not fear those that treat life cheaply. Instead, fear the one who does value you. So Jesus goes on to talk about, you know, in verses 6 and 7, the, the sparrows and the hairs on your head. And he says, why should we not, why do we not need to fear? Well, because you have a heavenly father who, you know, he cares about these worthless birds. I mean, you can buy five of these sparrows that are flitting around on the ground and trying to pick up little seeds. You can buy five of those for two pennies, you know, back in that first century economy, and I have no idea what two pennies is worth today. 
But it wasn't much, right? So five sparrows. Um, you're worth more than that. And, and he knows all the hairs on your head, and you're worth more than the hair on your head. And then you go, that's good. I th- Wait, no, it's not good. Um, what, are you, is Jesus saying that we're only, maybe we're worth three pennies? You're worth more than five sparrows. You can buy five sparrows for two pennies. Does that mean I'm worth three cents? And what about the hairs on your head? Like you and I, we pay money to have people cut our hair off. And it ends up on the floor in the barbershop or the beauty salon and a pile of other people's nasty hair. And then they they sweep that up and they throw it in the trash. What's What's your hair worth? And what are these sparrows worth? They're not worth much. All right, so the point, I'd much rather be told you're worth more than many animals that are worth something. You're worth more than many cows. You're worth more than many stallions. You know, like something that's got some worth, but you're missing the point if that's where you're going. The whole point is that God sees the details. He notices these tiny worthless birds that that we think are worthless, he, he counts the hairs on your head that, are, that really are worthless. Like, it's just dead follicles that we cut off and they go in the trash. He counts those. How much more, you know, it's the argument from the lesser to the greater, how much more does he care about things that really are important? People who bear his image. That's the point of this argument. That's the point Jesus is making. Like you and I, we have this messed up economy where we don't really pay attention or value the things that God does, but how much more the things that he says are supremely valuable. So this is, this is where you know, we get into this whole language of what are we worth? God says you are worth more than many sparrows. And you can't have this discussion about our worth without this whole concept of of you know, basically our condition apart from the grace of God and the gospel. And there's this whole language all throughout the Bible that describes our salvation in terms of a cost that's paid, of a worth that God ascribes to us, the value that he places on us. And if you've ever, you know, heard the theological term redemption, that's what we're talking about. If you've heard the word atonement, that's what we're talking about. So, and, and we, have to get, we have to get a little contextual here. And, and again, the news isn't great to start with, but it gets so much better. Because left to ourselves, the Bible keeps describing us in ways that aren't very flattering at all. We're very vulnerable, and we're also very guilty. Uh, we're vulnerable to sin, and we are slaves to sin. So when you think of redemption, you think of like the cost of a human being. Like, what's the cost of a slave, right? It's this price tag we put on people. And if you're a slave to sin, to be redeemed from that position of slavery, there's a price that has to be paid. So Jesus, when he was talking to the Pharisees, is calling them out on a lot of their assumptions that are just blatantly wrong about their relationship with God, thinking they're good and they're not. And Jesus is really trying to invite them into the kingdom by telling them they're wrong. Remember, we covered that a couple of weeks ago. And that was grace. And he says to them, look, I say to you, everybody who practices sin is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that's when the Pharisees got all kind of puffy and huffy. And they're like, well, we've never been slaves. Well, yeah, you're a slave to whatever 
you can't control about yourself. And then along comes Paul, and he's writing to the church in Rome. He used to be a Pharisee, so he knows all about this mindset of, you know, we've got our act together, and we know what to do, and we've got the law, and we've got our rules, and we, we work hard to keep them. And he goes, look, you know, I was, I was thick into those people, and I couldn't do it. And he's writing to the Romans, he says, you know, we know that the law is spiritual and good, but I am of the flesh, sold, there's that economic language, sold under sin, a slave to sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I don't do, I, I do not do what I want, the things that I want to do, I, I want to keep the law and I can't. But then I do the very thing that I hate, which is, you know, law-breaking and doing things that are unethical. And, like, he, he really does hate that, but he can't control himself because he is enslaved to sin. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That's the language of somebody who's bound, not free. And he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Who will redeem me? Who will rescue me from this body of death, this condition of spiritual slavery that puts us under a curse, under wrath, like subject to penalty and condemnation, this picture of hell that Jesus is talking about. Paul says in another letter to the Galatians, he says that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because our spiritual slavery to sin makes us unable to keep that which we're trying to obey. It's a lose-lose situation. And it's, you know, it's written in the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who does not do everything in the book of the law. So that's the context, right? We're, you know, slaves to sin under this curse but Jesus comes along and through this whole you know, topic that we call redemption, looks at our condition and says, I'm going to intervene and I'm going to rescue and I'm going to ransom. I'm going to free these people from their slavery. And that's what Jesus does. Uh, Paul writes to Titus and says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, from all sin, from all that slavery, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who were zealous for good works. Like God, so this is the picture. God wants us as his own possession. We belong to sin. We belong to Satan. We belong to the world. And, and Jesus is the price that God pays to bring us into his possession, to redeem us. It's an economic you know, model. And so you know, some of the commentators, you know, people like J.I. Packer and Mark Deaver say that how did Christ's sacrificial death actually save us? That is, rescue us from jeopardy and ruin? And the answer is by redeeming us, which means affecting our transfer from a state of bondage without hope to a state of freedom with a future by paying the price that the transfer required. So what is the price? What did God pay? What did he view was the price that would be worth paying in order to redeem us? And it's the blood of his son. The precious blood of Christ. He redeemed us with the life of his son. He 
paid. And and this isn't like you know Jesus is this unwilling you know partner. In this. Jesus said, "Sign me up. I'm going. No question." And he laid down his life for us because he loved us and he wanted to pay that price. And and so if you're thinking with me along this, if you're thinking carefully and and we're trying to figure out, so so there's the world's view of our worth and there's God's view of of our worth. And how, how does God value us? Well, he values us pretty highly. If he would pay the price of his son in order to redeem us, I mean, what more can he pay? What else can he give? Is there anything more valuable to him? And that's where it gets kind of weird because now you're going, okay, in the economics of heaven, what does God value the most? What is most precious to him? What is worth more than anything else in all creation, in all existence, in all, you know, even before creation, what does God value the most? And the answer is it's not us. It's his son. God the Father loves the son more than anything that ever was or ever is or ever will be because the son is supremely glorious. Jesus is the center of attention in heaven. He's the apple of his father's eye and all the saints and all the angels are surrounding him in concentric circles, singing his praises and admiring his glory forever and ever. That's how valuable and worthy Jesus is. So why would God give the son in order to have us? Don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought. We're not worth that much. We're just not. Like this whole gospel economy is like trading in your 2021 Tesla Model S for an 86 beat up Buick. Like that's not a good deal on the surface. Unless you just Unless you just love that Buick. Unless there's just something about it that you can't live without it. You've got to have it. Maybe you had your first kiss in it. Maybe your dad gave it to you and you know he's gone now. I don't know. Some sentimental value. There's, there's an intrinsic value that's not related to performance and to obedience and to productivity and so on. We have an intrinsic value to God that this is where we just have to kind of shrug our shoulders and say there's mystery here. There's love here. There's, there's love here that, doesn't, that, that stops counting the cost, stops like measuring you know, the assets and liabilities, and just says, I, I, I pity these people. The, the, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they just go, we're going to have mercy on them. We don't care what it costs. We love them. We want to show grace to them. We want to save them and bring them out of this state of misery and slavery and give them a state of salvation. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. 
to lay down his life to love us and to free us from our sins and to bring us into his kingdom so that by faith in him, not because we're measuring up, not because we're working hard, not because we're trying to increase our net worth, but just because he loves us and believing that it's true that we get into the kingdom, that we are are, are a part of that redemption, the recipients of that redemption. That's how you're in. That's how it works. It's just believing it. But something about believing it makes us different people. The Holy Spirit changes us, and, and we start to love the one who loved us that much. He didn't count the cost anymore. And you realize, well, I'm the object of that kind of love. I think I want to reciprocate. I think I want to love him back. To be loved that well and that deeply and that profoundly at such a cost, how can we not love him in return? And the changes that that, that that makes to us, how we start to view ourselves. What what do you think you're worth? What are you worth to you? The answer is not always pretty. The answer is evident. You know, it changes from day to day. Sometimes we feel pretty good about ourselves and we're telling ourselves nice things about ourselves. But then listen to yourself talking to yourself on the days when you don't love yourself. You're not, very, you're not worth very much to yourself. I'm an idiot. I'm a loser. I'm awful. I'm a failure. I'm terrible. Blah, blah, blah. So wouldn't it make sense to, if, if God's loving us that much, that he would give his son for us, that he, would, that he values us and, and, and thinks we're worth that, that we're worth more than many sparrows, like, isn't that going to change your view of yourself? Like if God considers us priceless, who are we to argue with his appraisal? And then we've got to start looking around. And how much does he love them, our neighbors, and the people who are different from us? And you look at Jesus and how, you know, his world and the value that people put on children and on sick people and disabled people and the aliens and the strangers and the enemies and his world, everybody thought they were worthless. But Jesus said they were valuable. He didn't treat any of them cheaply. He, he said, children, come to me. He would touch the sick people. He would heal the disabled people. He would welcome the aliens and the strangers, and he would make friends with the enemies. Is, is that the worth that we ascribe to our neighbors? Do our words and our actions reflect the value of the person that we're interacting with? Do our words and our actions affirm the value of the unborn and the elderly? And do our words and our actions affirm the value and the worth of the disadvantaged or the disabled? The worth and the value of the people who are just different from us, like politically different from us, culturally different from us, or ethnically different from us, sexually different from us. Do our words and our actions affirm the value, the worth of immigrants and exiles and strangers and enemies? It's going to revolutionize how we look at our neighbor. Like to think, if we're going to be the object of God's value, if we're going to be precious in his eyes, then guess what? We have to change how we view the value of the people around us.
We have to change, let me, let me close with this thought, a little bit different train of thought, but we have to change the way we value one another. Not just the people outside these walls, but the church. Our brothers and sisters. Like we make a big deal as disciples of Jesus and people who follow him, like me and Jesus, me and my relationship with Jesus. I'm going to heaven because of Jesus and I love Jesus and Jesus loves me and it's kind of like this me thing rather than an us thing. I'm not saying that's entirely true here. I think we do a good job of loving each other, but just let's go deeper. Like the church. If we're a disciple of Jesus, we're following him, trying to become more like him, we want to, be, we want to think like him, we want to act like him, but we also want to love like him. And who or what does Jesus love more than anything else on this planet? And what does Jesus value more than anything else in, in creation? What does he sacrifice for more than anything else? And it's, it's us, the church. Paul told the Ephesian elders, Be, pay careful attention to yourselves, to, to, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained or purchased with his own blood. Just, just pause and just think, what is the value that Jesus places on the church? Do we have that same sense of the worth of one another? That this is worth it. That this is worth our investment. This is worth our time. This is worth our energy. This is worth our care for one another. So, you know, the world's looking at our worth and trying to measure our productivity and our net worth and whatever, but the gospel measures our worth by how God values us. Good news. You are worth more than many sparrows. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for this good news. Uh, a, a really I think, important corrective for all of us. And uh, we don't, of course, we probably, we need to be repenting for not viewing ourselves the way you do, uh, but, but it seems like we can do more than repent. We can celebrate and we can give thanks because you love us and you value us. And you, of course, you see everything and you value everything, but how much more those that you would give the, the, the blood of Jesus to redeem us. Lord, we, we can't come up with anything suitable uh, or equitable to pay you back, and so we just give our hearts, and we want to love you in return. Help us to grow in that love. Help us to, to not only love you, but love ourselves and one another in appropriate ways. We just pray for mercy to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.